Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based podcast with regional content for regional clinicians. I'm Alyssa Hathaway, a GP and family planning clinician and head of JCU's clinical school here in Mackay. This collaborative podcasting project between North Queensland Regional Training Hubs, JCU, and our local regional hospital and health services will bring you a different regionally relevant podcast each fortnight. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands where we meet today, who were the original providers of healthcare in this region. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jason Yates, a paediatric endocrinologist at Townsville Hospital and Health Service, who is Medical Director of Women's and Children's Services. Hello, Jason. Thank you for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. Good morning. Jason, you really wanted to talk about diabetic ketoacidosis, uh, one of your passion projects. I think that's an incredibly important thing to talk about with the rising incidence of diabetes in our communities. Are the numbers really going up that much? Yes, I think if you think about diabetes as a general disease process across all ages, it's going up dramatically and has been for the last few years. Obviously, my role as paediatrics for which type 1 diabetes makes up the majority, and we have seen an incidence rise over the last five years as well. Um, And actually, we've seen a jump in the last 12 to 24 months, which post-COVID has a lot of people wondering about how much linkages there are there. Oh, wow. That's terrifying. I must admit, though, I've been a GP for nearly 20 years and I've only seen one paediatric case of diabetic ketoacidosis. I think the young boy was maybe 15 or 16, brought in by his mum, and he looked like a zombie when he was walking through the door with a ridiculous blood sugar. Should we be looking more carefully for the earlier signs of diabetes then in our patients in the community? 100%. And look, you know, we have done a bit of work on this and we plan to um, do some more work hopefully in the next 12 months. Uh, And so we got some funding through Clinical Excellence Queensland to develop an intervention, for want of a better term, where we looked at trying to improve the awareness of the signs of hyperglycemia in the community. Part of the planning for that project, we got out and about and and, and tried to look at the evidence base uh, as well as look at what people had done in the past. And one of the big things that comes out in that is from a primary care perspective, the the incidence of type 1 diabetes in, in the average practice is very low. Um, So most families that have type 1 diabetes are sort of whisked up into the the specialty clinics. And I can say this with insight is we're not very good at sharing. um, And that's probably to the detriment of what we're trying to achieve. But so I remember doing a survey about 10 years ago now in Brisbane. It was an after hours function for GPs through the MARTA. And we just out of interest did a brief survey of the 30, 35 GPs that were there, all very experienced. Um, And I think only about 60 to 70% of them had never actually seen type 1 diabetes in their careers. So never diagnosed it, never seen it. Uh, The ones that had it only done it once. So while small numbers, it really did highlight the fact that this is just not something that's commonly seen in primary care. And so the chances of being able to go, well, hang on, this could be type 1 diabetes is much lower because the the vast majority of diabetes seen in primary care is a completely different phenotype in type 2. Yeah, right. So I'm not alone then. That's reassuring. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Jason, what are those signs and symptoms of hyperglycemia that we might need to be more wary of in our paediatric patients that we're seeing in the community? 
the four common ones that we talk about, um, we call them the four T's. And, and this actually, so this concept originated in the UK, but Diabetes Australia coined the term 20 years ago and, and brought it across as being something catchy that would highlight what the symptoms are. And lots of research has shown that those symptoms remain the same. So it hasn't changed with any changes in incidence or disease. So the four T's stand for toilet, thirsty, thinner, and tired. Um, and what that translates to is polyuria and polydipsia, which are drinking too much and peeing too much, weight loss and lethargy with polyuria and polydipsia being the two most common symptoms. So we call them the four T's to keep them catchy as part of the little intervention that we did a couple of years ago. We even came up with some pretty pictures to, to go with each of them and, and to really just try and get a really simple message out to the community that if you've got any of these four symptoms, finger prick blood glucose is all you need to do. There's no fancy testing. It's just a finger prick using a glucometer. We've got some cutoff blood glucoses that if, if it's above, then they, you need to consider diabetes and send them to a place where they can get definitive care. I suppose for those patients who have those symptoms, there is the odd chance that their finger prick glucose might be normal at that particular point in time. I don't know how often patients say, I had these symptoms yesterday, but today they've resolved. What else should we be doing then if the finger prick is normal at that moment, but we have a high clinical suspicion? So I guess it depends a little bit on how long they've had the symptoms. If you think about the physiology behind why they've got polyuria and polydipsia, if it's diabetes, then by definition, their blood glucose should be high. So the, the polyuria is driven by a osmotic diuresis from hyperglycemia. So the increased glucose in the blood causes water to move from the intracellular space into the intravascular space, which then causes you to pee because your kidneys are working fine. But you keep peeing and peeing and peeing. And so eventually your body's like, well, I need some water now. And so you start drinking. And usually once the glucose is sort of hitting above 11, that's when you start getting glucose loss in the urine, which increases the polyuria. So if they've had, po if they've had the symptoms for one, two, three, four weeks, then if it's caused by diabetes, then their blood glucose will almost certainly be high. We've got three bands of concern that we use. So the first one is, the, and the most common is the random blood glucose, which is usually when you're going to do it. So if that's greater than 11, regardless of whether they're sick or whatever, then uh, there needs to be a really hard thought about whether this is diabetes. Yep. If by chance they come in and they don't, haven't had breakfast and they're fasting, uh, then if it's above seven, then that's abnormal. And then the other thing that we say is if they've got a blood glucose between 7 and 11, but it's random, there needs to be a consideration about whether they do have an abnormal glucose pathway, which might be the early stages of diabetes. Those sort of kids that we do, we do HbA1c screening, we do antibody testing. So I guess, the, I mean, that was a very long-winded answer to say that usually they will have a high blood glucose. But if, if you've got a high clinical suspicion that they've got diabetes, but you don't have the cutoff blood glucose levels that I've just said... One, you can pick up the phone and speak to your local diabetes service and, and just talk through the case. The other thing you can do is you can send them off for a HbA1c and antibody testing. Now, I always am a little bit worried about you saying this because what we commonly see is someone thinks that this could potentially be diabetes. And instead of doing the glucometer test, they send them off for blood tests. 
And I've certainly had a fair share of diabetes diagnosed by a phone call from Sullivan and Nicolaides telling a family that the blood glucose is 30 and you should go to the hospital. Really, that can be the difference between them presenting with diabetes and not in DKA and presenting in DKA. So glucometer is still the test. I guess if the glucometer test is normal and, you, and your suspicion's high, then you can do antibodies and HbA1c. But I would do that in conjunction with the diabetes service. Fantastic. And we do have such a great service across all of North Queensland looking after our diabetic patients, I know. Jason, are there a particular cohort of kids who we need to be more mindful of developing type 1 diabetes and then at risk of DKA than others? Yeah, so the peak incidence of type 1 diabetes in childhood is is two. So there's two areas that this happens. So the first is that early school age. So usually from the ages of five, six, three to eight. And then again, another incidence peak at in adolescence, usually around puberty. Uh, so they're definitely the peak ages that we see. Although that being said, we've got age ranges from nine months through to a lot older. And there's 30 and 40 year olds that have been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So it's not only these ages get it, but certainly that's the highest incidence. We find the younger kids are the hardest in regards to DKA. So no intervention that I've seen across the world has been able to influence the less than two-year-olds because I think they're just so tricky to pick those four Ts. And so the DKA rate in that age group is usually very high. What we do know, though, is that in those older age groups, in the places that have done interventions, they've been able to reduce their DKA rates from unacceptably high rates to less than 15%. And actually, when I started training, 20% was supposed to be the number. So one in five kids present in DKA, four in five don't. Whereas we did a peer review of all diabetes services a few years ago, and it, it was sitting at 50% or 45% as a statewide average. And an in some pockets, 100% were presenting oh. in DKA. So that was 45% up to 100% in some cohorts in Queensland, Jason? In Queensland. That's seen pretty globally across all of the states in Australia. We're getting to that sort of 40 to 50%. Uh, we looked at QCH's data, which is the Children's Hospital in Brisbane, and they were sitting usually around 50%. Our own data's been a bit interesting. We originally in Townsville had a DKA rate that was between 50 and 75%. I um, did a bit of a death by PowerPoint presentations to a bunch of GPs across Townsville, particularly the trainees, but also some GPs. And basically the message that I've already told you about the four Ts and please do a finger prick. And we actually dropped our DKA rate down to 25% for a period of time. And that was just purely through some awareness of what to do. We haven't quite been able to sustain that, but we do have one of the better DKA rates in the state because I think there's been some lingering. But as of the COVID period, we, we found that tricky again, just because people were finding it more and more difficult to access all forms of care. And there was some other things that people were worried about, not necessarily the, the 40s. Right. So, Jason, we've talked about the increasing incidence of type 1 diabetes across Australia, across the world, I imagine, mm. particularly over the last 12 to 24 months and maybe linked to COVID, particularly about the need to increase awareness of the signs of hyperglycemia, those four Ts, toilet, thirsty, thinner and tired, and how important awareness is to reduce the number of patients presenting with DKA. Just doing that finger prick is so incredibly important. 
treatment. When we do have those patients come in with elevated blood sugar, they've got those symptoms, uh, we can get on the phone to the local diabetes service. For those patients who have DKA, they need to go straight into hospital. We can't manage them in the community safely at all, can we? No. And, and look, to be to be fair, I think anyone that's got a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes should be referred in usually to the hospital because that's where most of the either the paediatricians or the paediatric endocrinologists or diabetes specialists are going to be because it's not just about making the diagnosis. It's also about commencement of insulin, which is the, the therapy, but also the education. It's, it's a huge change to the way families do business. And it's, you know, you're sweeping the rug out of a lot of families' feet with this diagnosis. They think their kids just got a flu or might have a urinary tract infection and now they've got this lifelong chronic disease. But DKA in, in itself, and I, I guess that's probably the next part of this is, you know, you'll hear lots of specialists come and talk to you about their pet project and why it's so important and everyone needs to listen. But DKA has such a significant impact on kids and adults with type 1 diabetes, both in the short but also in the long term, which is why preventing it's so important. So short term, DKA is if you're going to die from type 1 diabetes, DKA is the leading cause of death. Its mortality rate is still only about 0.9 of a percent, which is great. It's low, but it's still the highest cause of death of type 1 diabetes in childhood. And there's a particular complication of diabetic ketoacidosis known as cerebral edema, which is where your brain swells. And that's the thing that generally is the cause of death in DKA. And the problem with cerebral edema is not only if you get cerebral edema, about 30 to 40% of kids will die. So cerebral edema is really bad if you get that in DKA. But the ones that survive, about half of them will have neurological disability, which is you know an added layer to a, a chronic disease diagnosis that they weren't expecting. So DKA is, is quite dangerous as an emergency, as, essentially. The other thing is, is that most of these kids need some sort of high level of care, whether it be a, an, an ICU or a high dependency type area of a ward. Sometimes they need more invasive testing or lines, which can increase other morbidities such as venous thrombosis where the lines are they all get a degree of trauma and not just the kid but the family particularly you know there'll be families out there that have had a child in the ICU environment for a whole range of reasons and it's a scary time they always associate the time that they got diagnosed with diabetes with that scary time it delays the ability for our team to teach them about diabetes and it certainly increases the length of stay that they spend in hospital so in the short term DKA is such a bad start to what's already a, a really traumatic new diagnosis, but this just makes it far worse. And, and families talk about it from years later, about how they are still impacted by that uh, initial diagnosis and that DKA diagnosis in particular. Oh, wow. So, Jason, for those of us keeping our eyes open for the young people with the four Ts so that we can avoid DKA, if we do find a patient with diabetic ketoacidosis, what can we do as that first line of medical contact to help reduce the impact of this traumatic diagnosis? This is where prevention is so important, right? The treatment of DKA is very protocolized. So I think from a primary care perspective, keep the, the kitty safe. They might need some oxygen. Call an ambulance and you get them somewhere pretty quickly because even just the treatment with fluids needs to be done in a certain way to avoid making cerebral edema worse. So from a management point of view, we've protocolized it so heavily now just to avoid some of the variants and practice that we used to see. To me, the biggest thing that we can do is prevent this. And, and it's so preventable. 
I did a brief study at the same time that I did that piece with the GPs where I interviewed everyone that had been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes over a 12-month period in, in Brisbane at the Mater Children's as a you know decent numbers. And what I found was that when you looked at the two groups, so those kids that had DKA and those who didn't, they all had the same symptoms. So there was no difference there. They all had the same duration of the symptoms. So there was no difference. The only difference between the two groups was that those that presented in DKA had seen someone in healthcare at least twice to get the diagnosis. So it's, and that's, that's just what I found. But certainly when you look at some of the international literature, that is a recurring theme, which is they're not diagnosed with type one diabetes when they first seek help. And, you know, we're talking the delay might be a couple of days, but that might be all that it requires for them to progress into diabetic ketoacidosis. So prevention is the cure. Like we hear that a lot, but you know, this is certainly something where if we prevent DKA, we actually set them up for a whole bunch of long-term benefits. There was a a study that's come out of the Royal Children's in Melbourne that they're continuing to look at. And and this has been repeated in some other sites that showed that those kids that presented in DKA were cognitively worse off six months after the diagnosis. And that's when they compared them to people not in DKA of the same age. Their insulin therapy was the same. Their control was the same for the six months post the diagnosis. The only difference was that they presented in DKA and they were cognitively worse off. So that's just in the short term, short to medium term. And then in the long term, there's really lots of evidence starting to show that DKA is a risk factor for complications. So even before you're diagnosed, you could be setting yourself up for diabetes-related complications just because we didn't do a finger prick in time. It's so important. So a higher incidence of diabetic retinopathy, renal disease, peripheral neuropathy, all of those sorts of things. And the cognitive impairment, Jason, is that one of those neurological complications of DKA that you mentioned earlier? What are some of the other things we need to be thinking about? I think when we look at the cognitive impacts that uh, that are emerging in the evidence, and, and we don't know if these are temporary or permanent cognitive changes, what we do know is that the pH diagnosis for DKA is quite significant. So you need to, to reach a certain threshold from an acid-based disturbance. And even for mild DKA, your pH needs to be 7.2 to 7.3, which is actually reasonably abnormal, and that's mild DKA. And for severe DKA, it needs to be less than 7.1 with a less a bicarb less than five. So we're talking about a significant metabolic compromise. And there are some emerging studies that have shown that even uh, any DKA can lead to some form of cerebral edema. It may not be clinically evident. However, on MRI, they were able to show some evidence of it. And so that may be the the causative factor for for why um, some of these kids have cognitive impairment in the six months preceding a diagnosis. You know, I think what this says, and, and you put all of this together to just show that DKA is not a benign thing. The kids all get better. They usually get better within 24 to 48 hours. The treatment processes that we have work and we do it in a way that usually tries to keep them as safe as possible. They do walk out of hospital with a life-changing diagnosis, but they do it feeling better. But actually, we may have already set them up for a life that's more tricky than it needed to be. And I think that's the important point to get across. 
right. So Jason, our take-home message is keep our eyes healed for the four T's in our young people. Toilet, thirsty, tired and thinner. 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 How could I forget thinner? <laughs> Anyone who has DKA needs high-level care immediately. And fortunately, that's done by the protocol to keep these young people as safe as possible. But the trauma for the child and the family is so much greater when there's diabetic ketoacidosis as the diagnosis, plus the increased incidence of those end-stage diabetic markers with damage to their eyes, their kidneys, the peripheries, which we can avoid by just being more aware as that first port of call in the community or in our emergency departments when we see these young people. Jason, is there anything else we need to be mindful of when we're thinking about diabetic ketoacidosis? You know, I think probably the other important point is for practice managers and admin staff and in GP practices, they'll get families that'll call with some of these symptoms. And what we were able to show, which we published a couple of years ago, is families don't see the four T's as anything to worry about, particularly the polyuria and polydipsia ones. They actually don't consider that to be a reason to go see your GP same day. So usually I think most reception, triage, admin uh, areas of most GP practices will ask about what the urgency is and parents won't say this is urgent. And so that's one thing that we need to think about because, I mean, we'll be living under a rock to know that access to primary care has been challenging over the last couple of years and, and a lot of practices, particularly popular practices, do have reasonably long waiting lists and they all have emergent slots. But families need to know how to activate those emergent slots so that they can be seen. So there is a community piece in this about if your child suddenly starts wetting the bed of the nighttime and they've always been dry or they're drinking ridiculous amounts of water, even for North Queensland weather, that's an emergency reason to go and see a GP. Dr. Jason Yates, paediatric endocrinologist in Townsville, thank you so much for your time today and shedding a bit more light on diabetic ketoacidosis. It would be great to see the incidence of DKA down from the 45-odd percent down to that 20% goal and even lower. That would be perfect. We look forward to seeing what happens with your research into the increasing incidence of type 1 diabetes over the last couple of years. Thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure. For more information about The Roundup, or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup hyphen podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au. We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs, or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline, and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, Health Services, Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisations and General Practice Clinics.